Yeah, well, I think people probably know me from Black Indians and before that, a book called The Black West. Uh, but tonight I'm going to be uh, drawing on my research from a book I wrote on the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the Americans who went to Spain from 1936 to 1939 to fight against the first outcropping, uh, well, the first important outcropping of fascism in Europe. Now, before you get started, sure. uh, let the audience know that they can also read your article. Yes, it's it's on the website of the Huffington Post. I think that's HuffPost.com. It's also on the website of Common Dreams, CommonDreams.com. Uh, you could possibly get to it by posting my name, uh, William Lauren Katz, and World War II, Spain, Ethiopia, and words like that all together, and you'd probably get to it also. My website is WilliamLKatz.com, and uh, you will see articles there that relate to the Spanish Civil War uh, that are drawn from my uh, different books. You'll see uh, material about my books, about my lectures that I give in the New York area and across uh, in California, elsewhere, and in Europe, Africa, and so on. Uh, and people are free to go there. And I hope uh, after I proceed for a while, you know, people who will have a chance to uh, get up the article on their screens from the websites that I've given you, Common Dreams and Huffington Post, will call in if they have questions. <laughs> because the topic is quite large. It has to do with World War II, how did it get started, who was fighting whom, and uh, some of the answers are going to surprise uh, your listeners. Well, I, uh, I think everybody knows something about World War II because it's been pictured as the good war, the war against fascism, the war that, you know, really had to be fought. And thank goodness the democracies, you know, got it together and fought Hitler, Mussolini, and Imperial Japan and defeated them before their plan for world domination took over. But what I'd like to talk about to your audience is really what happened, because before the attacks on Pearl Harbor and the United States coming in to the war, it was hardly a war against fascism. And that's easy to establish, because the, the three Axis powers that we were arrayed against were Japan, Italy, and Germany. And these, uh, the aggressions by these countries <clears throat> began much earlier than 1939 when the war officially began. Matter of fact, Japan attacked and invaded Manchuria in 1931 and subdued it. And by the way, nobody kind of did anything more than frown. When I say nobody, I'm talking about the world's democracies. They kind of said, oh, well, and they continued actually to trade with Japan. But Japan would then, from Manchuria, launch in 1937 its attack on China. So each time the democracies did nothing or just smiled at the aggressions of the Axis powers, they felt emboldened. <clears throat> the next attack I want to talk about came in 1935. Um, 
Benito Mussolini, the uh, fascist head of the Italian government at the time, wanted to build a um, an empire for himself in Africa, and he attacked and invaded uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia was a peaceful nation; it was ruled by its ruled by its monarch, Haile Selassie, and the Italian planes flew over. They dropped. Um, bombs, they dropped poison gas, and and this was the attack that came on innocent Ethiopia. Now, an interesting story comes out of that. <clears throat> As the Italian fascist planes bombed and dropped poison gas, gas on peaceful villages and spear-carrying soldiers, Emperor Haile Selassie turned to what was then the League of Nations, it's kind of a predecessor of our United Nations today. And speaking in his native Amharak, described fascist air and chemical attacks as on a people, quote, without arms, without resources. And this is what he said. Collective security is the very existence of the League of Nations, end quote. And he warned that international morality is at stake. Well, Ethiopia, if I remember correctly, was the longest-lasting kingdom in Africa. It had not been colonized, as a lot of African uh, countries had been by that point, by the Europeans who had gone in after the slave trade and uh, and taken all those people out, put them in chains, and sold them all over the world. Uh, And then the Europeans went back in and kind of divided Africa up. England had its colonies, France, Germany, and so on. So it was the longest-standing African uh, country with its own monarch, and so on. And 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 what Selassie did, speaking to the League of Nations, remember these are the nations of the world that were formed after World War One to bring about peace. So there would never be a horrible uh, coinage that there had been in World War One where millions and even tens of millions of people had died, including many civilians. And Selassie faced the delegates, and he said, God and history will remember your judgment. But what happened was the governments did nothing. They shrugged, and once again, this was an encouragement to the aggressors that nobody was really going to step in. And by the way, they continued to trade with them, even as he did this savage attack on Ethiopia. In the United States, African Americans were very incensed and they began to train for military action for going to Ethiopia. An estimated 8,000 in Chicago, 5,000 in Detroit, 2,000 in Kansas City. And in New York City, where there were 1,000 men drilling, these, these are African Americans, a nurse at Harlem Hospital named Solaria Key, a young nurse. Um, who was in charge of the young infants there, the newborns, she collected funds to send a 75-bed hospital and two tons of medical supplies to Ethiopia. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson addressed a Harlem League Against War and Fascism rally to denounce Mussolini and the fascist attack on Ethiopia. And A. Philip Randolph, the famous black labor leader, linked Mussolini's invasion to what he called the terrible repression of black people in the United States. And there was even a march in Harlem, 
Harlem for Ethiopia. 25,000 men and women marched to protest what was happening in the attack on Ethiopia. And I have to say, because it's important to know, it wasn't just African-Americans that marched, but anti-fascist Italian-Americans also marched in solidarity. And then New York actually raised enough money to send two delegations to Haile Selassie and bring two Ethiopian delegations to this country. Well, I just want to point out that at the time... African-Americans were going to Spain and trying to help Ethiopia to fight fascism. We had a kind of our own brand of fascism here in the United States. It was called segregation. It was called discrimination. And it was buttressed by state laws that prohibited people of color from doing what they wanted, even attending schools of their choices. And also it was buttressed by lynching. The attacking of innocent, usually very innocent people of color, uh, taking them from jails or seizing them on the street and hanging them, largely in the southern states, but not entirely. And this was the country, this was the U.S., that went to war to fight against fascism and the racism the Nazis were spreading throughout Europe. Uh, the NAACP and other black organizations said they were fighting, and this was the slogan, for the double V. V, the letter V standing for victory. Victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home. This was the battle. And a lot of the black soldiers and sailors that went in, and there were volunteers as well as drafted people, they thought that if they showed their valor and they fought for the United States, Surely, and, and helped defeat fascism in Europe that was, uh, you know, running, overrunning Europe and the rest of the world. They, that would be a victory for their gaining civil rights and equal rights. And the leaders were those men, Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph. And uh, they, they carried on uh, agitation. They even had a friend in a woman named Eleanor Roosevelt, who was married to Franklin Roosevelt, the President of the United States. And I have photographs of her attending uh, USO cl uh, clubs for the servicemen to relax back in the United States when they were on leave. And you can see in these photographs, she's sitting there with black and white servicemen and women. And she was an integrationist at that time. So uh, people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who was an advisor to President Roosevelt during that time, was also a good friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt helped a number of the black leaders like Mary McLeod Bethune and others who were considered radicals at the time to reach the president's ear and to... She, she helped do things like getting the 99th Pursuit Squadron, which was the, 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 the black... Uh, Tuskegee Airmen started. Mm -hmm. She pushed that. People didn't think at that time, oh, black people can't fly. Guns, they can't man guns while planes are flying in the air. And she got that thing started, and she was one of the main supporters of that. And, of course, now, the Tuskegee ask, Airmen were very important. I have to ask you two, about two more people, uh, two of my favorite people. 
Einstein. I also read about Einstein and Paul Robeson. Yes. They met with the president to stop lynching, and I didn't think I don't think the meeting went too well. And also Ida B. Wells. So could you talk about those two? And I promise I'll let you hang up after this. Ida B. Wells was, of course, the leader of the anti-lynching campaign, and had been since the 1890s when she was uh, driven out of Tennessee for exposing lynchings uh, when white uh, butchers were lynching uh, black butchers because they were their economic competitors. They hadn't done anything. And and Ida B. Wells continued. I I think she died before. I think she died in the late 1930s. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, And there was Lucy Parsons, who I wrote about in Black Indians, who was a radical leader going back to 1886, came out of Texas, and she was of African and Native American descent, and she was marching in parades and in picket lines and so on in Chicago. And there were others all all around the country. Uh, My father was involved with a group here in New York called the Committee for the Negro and the Arts. You mentioned television. Well, there was no television to speak of in the 1940s, in the early 1940s, but uh, black entertainers couldn't get jobs in radio. They had uh, real trouble getting jobs in movies. They certainly couldn't be stars. And uh, my father and his good friend Walter Christmas wrote a play on black history that was performed in the basement of the Schomburg Library in the late 1940s. And among the stars were young people that nobody ever heard of, like Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. Now, there's another thing that happened. In Chicago, there was a a young black man named Oliver Law, and he called a, a mass meeting in Chicago to denounce... Uh, Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. And 10,000 people showed up on the, on the streets of Chicago. But the mayor of Chicago had banned the rally, so he sent 2,000 police. So what Oliver Law and his uh, fellow uh, compatriots did was, first Oliver Law appeared on a roof, rooftop, and he tried to address the crowd, and he did for a while before he was arrested. But as soon as he was arrested, another fellow appeared on another rooftop. By the way, there were black speakers and there were white speakers. And in all six of the speakers who appeared were arrested. So that, together with the mobilization that I've told you in various cities across the country, showed that African Americans here in the United States were not going to take what happened to Ethiopia lying down. Now, so here you have aggressions going on by what are going to be called the fascist powers or the Axis powers, and nobody's doing anything. Nobody's hardly even getting a slap on the wrist. And then the following year, after Ethiopia has to capitulate and Haile Selassie to flee, there's a attempted coup of the Spanish government, in uh, Republican government in Spain. This is 1936 now, and there's a newly elected government of men and women. Some of them are socialists, some are communists, some are liberals, some are just old-style Democrats and Republicans, and they've elected a new government. They want to set Spain on a new course. Well, that was fine for them, but there's a a, um, general, 
Generalissimo Franco in Morocco, who is very concerned that this is going to upset the plans of fascism. So he, along with other generals who were opposed to this democratic government, organized a coup d'etat. And they have their troops in Morocco. And the question is, how do they get those troops to Spain, which is across the Mediterranean and a few, I guess, a few thousand miles away, maybe only a thousand. Well, at this point, Hitler and Mussolini intervene. The Nazi Air Force, the Luftwaffe, sends something like 20 Junkers and cargo planes to ferry General Franco's rebel troops from Morocco into Burgos, which becomes the capital of the people trying to overthrow the democratic government. And from Burgos, they start a march on Madrid. So here now, suddenly, is an attempted coup in Spain essentially being turned into a miniature civil war. And this is very important because this is played out for the next three years in Spain. And it alerts people all over the world. Uh, first, let's start with Franco's side. He's got air help as he rides to uh, Madrid with his soldiers. The Luftwaffe is giving him air cover. By the way, they uh, flying his troops from Morocco into Spain is the first example of an airlift in all our history. So here's the first example of an airlift, and it's fascism on the move trying to capture the government of Spain. Spain, the people in Spain are waiting. They're nervous. They, uh, the army has betrayed them. They're being attacked by the army. Let me just add in some details. As Franco heads toward uh, Madrid, and he thinks a quick victory, his troops are riding in Ford, Studebaker, and General Motors trucks. Three quarters of his oil is going to be supplied by U.S. oil companies. Even though he's staging a coup d'etat, and he's leading a rebel army against a government that has the official power, he's going to have no problem borrowing money in the world. He can borrow money. Uh, his credit is good, mainly, I guess, because he's got Hitler and Mussolini as allies. He's also got, as I said, the democracies either asleep on their feet or helping the Nazis and the Italian fascists. France closes its border to Spain, so people can't get in to help the republic. Volunteers, uh, material aid can't get in. Mussolini's uh, submarines patrol the Mediterranean, so any country or people trying to get in to help the uh, republican government, uh, uh, ships can be sunk, and they were sunk. Any volunteers that go into France have to sneak around, make believe they're tourists, and then at night try to cross the Pyrenees, not a small mountain group at all, from France into Spain. And also Portugal, which also has a fascist dictator at this time, is also sending in something like 12,000 or 10,000 troops, uh, some 50 to 100,000 Italian fascist troops 
go in. Hitler sends in his Gestapo. The British have a telephone exchange in Gibraltar, right off the coast of Spain. And Franco's uh, designated people can go to that phone exchange and they can call Berlin or Rome and keep in touch with their fascist allies. So here's Spain about to reenact what what we call a small version of World War II. And as the Nazi and the fascist forces march on Madrid, something happens that never happened before. The Radio Barcelona issues a call to the world that essentially says, help us save democracy. Fascist forces are trying to overthrow us. Franco would be nothing if it hadn't been for Hitler and Mussolini. They're on the march. If you don't stop fascism at the gates of Madrid, you're all in for a really rude awakening and terrible war. That turned out to be the case. So at the gates of Madrid, Spanish people, including this time even women, get guns. They march to the front. They carry their lunch. Some of them go and uh, get cars and are taken to the front. And they're trying to hold back this march of Franco and his troops. And they stop them. But something else happens that's never happened in the world before. The call that Radio Barcelona sends out for help, help save Spanish democracy, is answered in a way that is utterly unique. People from 53 nations of the world leave their jobs, leave their homes, pick up and head to Spain to try to help the Spanish people fight the threat of fascism. Once again, as I tell you the story, I want to point out that England and France have done nothing to stop Hitler, and they're not going to do anything at this point. But the people of the world, if I may use the phrase, an early kind of United Nations of individuals show up, and they go to Spain by the tens of thousands, amounting to about 35 to 40,000 people. Now, part of those who go, of course, come from the United States. And one of those who goes, for example, as a nurse, is the woman Solaria Key, who I mentioned earlier, who was raising funds for a hospital for Ethiopia. Um, Others are southern sharecroppers who are African-Americans, and uh, Jim Yates, a fellow I met, one of them, uh, escaped Mississippi, escaped lynching, and he said, Spain is also our Ethiopia. They couldn't get, the African-Americans couldn't get to Ethiopia in time to save Haile Selassie and his government, but they think that maybe they can help out in Spain. So of the 40,000 people rushing to Spain at the time, something like 2,800 are Americans. They come from all walks of life. They're professors and seamen and students and even a couple of acrobats, some unemployed people, union organizers, and so on. I did a book on this group called the Lincoln Brigade, and I interviewed many of them uh, for the book. Uh, But let me just continue to tell you this story. Another aspect 
of this brigade, this Lincoln Brigade, that's forming in Spain is unlike any other American army in 1936. It's racially integrated. You may remember I mentioned a fellow named Oliver Law who organized this rally against Ethiopia the year before. Well, he's an African-American who served in the Buffalo Soldiers way back at the turn of the century. So he got some military training, and he gets to Spain. And lo and behold, he is nominated by three white officers to serve as commander of the Lincoln Brigade. And so you have, in, in 1937, when he assumes command, just around this time, matter of fact, we're right in the period now, if you go back to 1937, this period in June, where Oliver Law commanded the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. But let me just add one other thing since you asked about that. How old was General Colin Powell when Oliver Law took command of the Lincoln Brigade? I can tell you. Okay. He was three or four days old. So you can see how slow the U.S. Army was in getting around to the Democratic Army uh, of Americans that was forming in Spain. And Oliver Law was well-liked by his men. He had, I spoke to uh, one of his runners uh, named Fisher, who was mm-hmm. a Jewish boy from New York, and he had another fellow, Jerry Weinberg, from Chicago, who, when he was seriously wounded, crawled out across the battlefield to pull Oliver Law back, hopefully to rescue him. But he died, okay. unfortunately, of his wounds. Well, I'm trying to grasp this, because you said he was a Buffalo soldier? Back, yes. He was back around in the 19, let's see, let me get this right. He was about, he was 32 when he was in Spain. That was in 36. So it was around the time, just before World War I, around there. He had served for a couple of years in the Buffalo Soldiers. And because he was of African descent, he could not become an officer. The highest that he could rise to was corporal. I have an article of, on him and uh, and the Lincoln Brigade on my website if people want to, to check it out. Okay. Um, let's give out your contact information one more time. Well, my website is williamlcats.com. And if uh, people go there, williamlcats.com, go to my website. I do have a section there on articles. And they can see also I have pictures there. And there are articles about or from my books, and they can check them out. Okay. I'm going to deviate just a little bit away from your um, article because, you know, we're about to celebrate June 19th. And soldiers play a very important uh, role in the holiday, Juneteenth holiday. Um, Buffalo Soldiers, could you elaborate on Buffalo Soldiers and their role with the Emancipation Proclamation during Juneteenth? The Buffalo Soldiers were the uh, units formed uh, when the United States Army, after the Civil War, opened its ranks to African Americans. And they opened their ranks because during the Civil War, uh, more than 180,000 black men had served very gallantly in the uh, Union Army and Navy. And actually, something like 18 earned the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
So they did open the ranks of the U.S. Army to black men, but they set up segregated units. And these were called the, the cavalry units, 9th and 10th Cavalry, 24th and 25th Infantry, were racially segregated in that the soldiers in them were African Americans and their officers were invariably white. A uh, black man simply could not rise higher than uh, an, being a non-commissioned officer. None could, you know, be uh, in charge of troops and so on, as Oliver Law was in Spain. On June t- on Juneteenth, what uh, why Juneteenth is important is that that was the day in Texas, which was the last state of the Confederacy that was liberated by the Union armies, and it's celebrated as a holiday of freedom by by people of African descent, many of whom had been enslaved. And uh, it, it then spread to many places. I actually spoke at a Juneteenth celebration in Westchester County about 20 years ago. And there have been celebrations because for the people of African descent who lived in Texas, that was when they became free. Not when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation because the Emancipation Proclamation could only free people who the army could reach or people of color who could reach the Union Army. And it took the Union Army way down uh, until June uh, uh, 19th, 1865, to get down to Texas and liberate the last slaves. Okay, and the significance, and you talked about this in your book, Black Indians, and you've been on my show earlier with uh, Mr. Spexico, Ponte. Sure. And you talked about, right, there were several places through an Underground Railroad uh, movement uh, that blacks were able to uh, seek refuge. And just just as the blacks had a place to seek refuge from freedom, Slaveholders had a place to hide their slaves. That's true. Wasn't Texas one of the places that many of them fled with their enslaved people to avoid um, Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation, to avoid the Underground Railroad? Yes, that's that's very true. As a matter of fact, all of the rest of the Confederate states had been subdued and occupied, and so the slaveholders forced large groups of their slaves in chains. They marched them south, out of the Carolinas, out of Mississippi and Alabama, into Texas, where they thought they would be safe from the Emancipation Proclamation. And also, they also hoped that the Confederates in Texas would be able to continue the fight, that they wouldn't have to surrender entirely, as uh, General Lee had done at Appomattox in, in Virginia that there was a chance that they could fight on. So you're right, it became, Texas also became a place that slaves escaped from also. And they skipped across the Rio Grande border into Mexico. So by the time of the Civil War, you had something like 3,000 African Americans, escaped slaves largely, living in Mexico. Actually, what went on in, in Texas started the war with Mexico because the slaveholders were bringing their slaves to to Texas. 
And uh, Texas was part of Mexico. And in 1829, Mexico <clears throat> had banned slavery. So there was real trouble. The Mexicans said, you can't do this. And the Texas, uh, the white Texans, particularly the slaveholders, then uh, revolted against the Mexican government. And they tried to set up what they called the Lone Star State. And when the Mexicans said, no, you're, you're, you're part of uh, Mexico, you can't do that. And they attacked. Then this was the war over Mexico in which the United States went in, as it always did on the side of slaveholders, fought and defeated Mexico, and not only took and kept Texas as a state, but took all of Mexican territory that extended mm -hmm. from Texas all the way to California. That became part of the United States when it was really a part of Texas. Terrible. And wasn't there what many call a black president that banned slavery yes. in Mexico? <clears throat> yeah, I wrote, yeah, I wrote about him in Black <clears throat> Indians. His name was Vicente Guerrero. And uh, he was a, a poor mule driver who uh, worked. He was a black and Native American descent. And when Mexico revolted against Spain, he became one of the military leaders. And he took his troops up into the Sierra Madre Mountains, and he trained them there, and it was even there that he, at the age of 40, learned to read and write. And he kept fighting. He didn't give up. And finally, Spain was defeated. And in 1829, Vicente Guerrero, this person of black Indian uh, origins, was, became president of Mexico. And he, what he, and, and what he did is he, wait a minute, Leslie, what he did was even more wonderful. He mm -hmm. freed the slaves. He abolished the death penalty. He put through a constitutional amendment that ended discrimination on the base of race, culture, or nationality in Mexico. He was, that, as one historian said, both the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of Mexico. Okay. I think what I've established by the stories I've told you about what happened to Ethiopia and the democracies did nothing, so fascism took over. What happened to Spain, where the democracies did nothing, and fascism triumphed. Maybe I didn't get to that. But General Franco, with the help of Mussolini and Hitler, became dictator of Spain. And six months later, Hitler launched his attack on Poland that began what is officially called World War II. Now, at that point, the democracies no longer felt they could sit, just sit by and hope that Hitler would attack places they didn't care about because he, the Poland had had an agreement with England and I think France. They had an alliance. So England and France were finally drawn in. And on June 22nd, 1941, when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union became part of the main allies that were fighting fascism in Europe and around the world. And, of course, the United States came in uh, on December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor in 1941. And I remember that. I was a, I was a high school student at the time that Sunday, and I was attending a birthday party in Brooklyn for a one-year-old child, 
And I remember when the news came of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But what I think what I'm getting at is that it took a long time. If you measure from the Japanese invasion of Manchuria to Pearl Harbor, that's 10 years before England, France, and the U.S. decided it really had to fight fascism. The Ethiopians didn't wait that long. They fought fascism in 1935. <clears throat> the Spanish people tried to fight and defeat fascism from 1936 to 1939. And 40,000 people from <clears throat> how many countries was that? I said 32 or three countries left their homes and went to help Spain to try to defeat fascism. But fascism was helped at that point rather than hindered by the large nations of the world. And it, and it finally took the kind of effort that the uh, volunteers who went to Spain put together, black people, white people, Asian people, men, women, all together from all of the nations of the world to defeat fascism finally in 1945. I don't know if you want me to go into any other aspects of it. I've left a lot of things out. You know, but once again, as you said, people can consult my article on it. It's somewhat lengthy. I think you'll find it interesting on the Huffington Post or CommonDreams.com. And I will, I will post it on my website, I hope, soon. Uh, I would even like to add a personal note that I did myself. I rushed off to a recruiting station. I was about 17 and a half. I was a high school senior. And I was all ready to take on, in 1944, world fascism. Well, I got to the recruiting station, Navy recruiting station, and cooler heads prevailed. I was told, please wait till your graduation in June. I did wait, and then just days after I graduated, I was uh, called in and served in the uh, U.S. Navy. By the way, I was assigned to the Asiatic Asia Pacific Theater. I served from Hawaii to Iwo Jima, Okinawa, to Saipan, and I even visited the, as the war ended, the Japanese naval base at Sasebo, Japan. And I was in the China Seas, and it was all over for me in about 13, 14 months, and I was discharged and back home and ready to go uh, to college. But I did serve, as I said, on the USS Cook Inlet and the USS Barataria. They were seaplane tenders. So I, have, I, I had a personal interest in, in World War II. And by the way, by the time I rushed, you're doing is performing a very important community service so that people, whoever listens, black or white, doesn't matter, they need this education. A lot of people don't know it. And it's very important that we learn these facts. Education can help defeat the, the enemies that we're fighting. Yes. All right, Mr. Katz, um, let's give out your contact information and your last parting words. Okay. Uh, my contact, uh, people can get to my material at WilliamLKatz.com. I have a whole slew of essays there, often accompanied by my pictures, which I'm very proud of. And you can read about my books, like such as Black Indians or the Black West or the Lincoln Brigade or other things. Uh, and I'm you know, very happy to be on your program anytime because you're trying to spread the truth. And heaven knows we need that a lot. 